are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Uh, we're going to be in uh, Paul's letter to the, to the Ephesians. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with your Bible, if you look at mine up here, it's going to be in the last part of your Bible. We can go ahead and find that. It's along with a bunch of other letters um, in uh, our Bible that, that we call now the Word of God. Um, so this is Paul's letter. We're going to be in chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 3 and read all the way down to verse 6. So my friends, my family in Christ, would you hear These words of the Lord through God's servant, Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoptions as son through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Now the entire first section of this letter, verses 3 through 14, is this Trinitarian praise from the Apostle Paul. We see in verses 4 through 6, praise for the Father's electing. We see 7 through 12, praise for the Son's redeeming. And in verses 13 through 14, it's praise for the Spirit's sealing. Each stanza. It's a trinity of trinities, a trinity of praise for the Trinitarian God. Each one ends with to the praise of his glory, if you look at your Bibles from verses 3 through 14. And today, we are going to focus on the Father's electing. Now, the doctrine of the fatherhood of God has huge ramifications for us as a church family. Many of you have been shaped by your earthly fathers. Some of you had imperfect but great fathers that you grew up with, and you still get to enjoy them to this day. Others have had far less than perfect fathers. Might have lost your father. You had an absent father. And whether we are aware of it or not, Our fathers, who they were or lack thereof, they affect who we are today. And this is why the fatherhood of God, God as Father, is so important for the church at Ephesus to understand who he is. Because if you understand who God the Father is, 
you'll more richly and robustly comprehend who you are. You'll know whose you are. And when you know whose you are, you'll know who you are supposed to be wherever you are. That is our main point for today. That because we are, who are we? We are the Father's children. Paul wants us to know that we can be who we are wherever we are. And because of this Father's great love for us found in Christ Jesus, he's going to show us how that happens through three different lenses. The first lens is we are going to see the result of the Father's choosing us. The second lens is the reason the Father predestined us. And the third is the response to the Father blessing us. You got those three in front of you, the result of the Father choosing us, the reason the Father predestined us, and third, the response to the Father blessing us. Paul wants you to be who you are, children of God, wherever you are. Y'all ready to dive in? First points. The result of the Father choosing us. Look with me in verses 3 through 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Do you see what Paul's saying? All blessings originate and find their origin in who God is. God who is blessed is the source of all blessing. Blessed is who God is and blessed is what God calls us and offers us if we are in Christ Jesus. And he has blessed us with, what does it say? Spiritual blessings. In fact, every spiritual blessing. What are those? Well, here's what we know just from this verse. Spiritual blessings are both in Christ and in the heavenly places. Now, we're going to dive deeper into what these heavenly places or where these heavenly places are in chapter 3. But a short definition of this is the heavenly places is the sphere in heaven where Christ reigns as supreme. It's where Christ reigns as supreme. Now, blessings typically were favorable situations and favorable conditions. But this is a spiritual blessing. And it's in the midst of an unfavorable situation. Do you see what Paul says? He has blessed not just you, us. Us includes the Apostle Paul. Where is Paul? Help me out. Prison. Do you know what this means? It means that your experience of spiritual blessings has nothing to do with your current circumstance or predicament, but can be experienced even in the worst of situations. Spiritual blessings don't promise you a life free of pain. They promise you a way to flourish in a life filled with pain. 
This can be experienced in your job you hate, your roommate that you might not like so much, your school, your home. Every spiritual blessing is offered to you wherever you are. Now, if this were me writing, you know how I'd start off this letter? Listen, I know y'all are going through stuff, but let me talk about me. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I've had a meal in weeks, and I haven't slept well because all I got is this hard floor to sleep on because I'm stuck in prison while you're nice and happy in your home in Ephesus. That'd be me, right? Not Paul. No, he doesn't even mention his predicament until the beginning of chapter 4. Because of the nature of this spiritual blessing, he doesn't begin with his situation. He begins with a theology that leads to doxology. It's a theology that leads to praise, and it does not stop. This is a 14-verse, 202-Greek-word run-on sentence. Any English majors or English teachers in here? A 202-word run-on sentence. Paul can't stop, and he won't stop. It's theology. Leads to doxology. All he can do is praise for these spiritual blessings. What could these spiritual blessings be that Paul, in the midst of a worst-case scenario, is still able to praise God? I'll tell you what they are. Just All you do is read down a little bit. It's every blessing of the Holy Spirit. It's your adoption as sons of God. It's the complete forgiveness of our sin. It's our holiness and our blamelessness before God. It's the promise of the seal of our approval in Christ Jesus. Paul writes later in verses 13 and 14 that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise. There he goes again. To the praise of his glory. Paul knows that God has not withheld one single blessing from him. Verse 3, he says, every, every spiritual blessing, he has access to it. Do you know that every spiritual blessing you need, you already have? Do you know that every blessing you could ever desire has already been offered to you? And it's in Christ. Because if it's in Christ and you are in Christ, then what belongs to Jesus belongs to you. Not some of his spiritual blessings. All of it, Paul says. And we can be sure of this. Why? Because long before the world was ever created, God had you in mind. Long before there's even birds in the air, fish in the sea, before you even breathed your first breath, God chose you. And he chose you in Christ, which shows off the eternality of the second person of the Trinity. Christ existing before the foundation of the world. And in Christ, God thought of you. You. 
before you ever thought to choose God, God chose you. Before you could ever do one good deed, God chose you. And you say, but, but, but I did choose God. Well, yeah, you did. Only because he chose you first. That's what Paul's saying. That before you ever made a decision for Christ, Christ already made a decision for you. This doctrine is not meant for arguments. It's meant for the assurance of your salvation. It assures you that before you ever did one good work, it's not by your works that you are saved, God already chose you. It assures you that before you ever made a decision about God, God decided in advance to make you his child. This has always been God's plan. This has always been his character. Adam and Eve did not choose God in their sin when they hid. God pursued them, chose them. Noah did not choose God. God chose Noah. Abram did not choose God as a sojourner and a wanderer. God chose Abram to be Abraham, to be a blesser and a father of many nations. God chose Jacob. Jacob did not choose God. And when God incarnate, the eternal son in whom you were chosen came to this earth, those disciples did not go looking for him to try to find Jesus. Jesus found them and chose them. And you, me, I did not go looking for God. God found me. Found us. Chose us. And he chose you for a purpose, a result. Did you see why he chooses us before we could ever do any good works? So that, verse 4, so that we'd be what? Holy and blameless before him. Notice, he didn't choose you because you are holy and blameless. Oh, what good news. He chose you so that you would be holy and blameless. To make you holy and blameless. Because we could not be holy and blameless on our own. This word set apart, hagias, holy, means to be set apart for the Ephesian church. To not look anything, to not mirror the world around them, but instead be mirrors of their God. For us to be set apart here in Pittsburgh means for us to mirror the image of God and not mirror the world around us. Peter tells us the church in dispersion. He says in 1 Peter 1.15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Do you know who you are? Paul says you're holy, you're blameless, that in Christ, at every moment in our life, we are positionally holy. Anybody feel holy today? That's what God calls you in Christ. That's who you are. 
And Paul's saying, let your positional holiness that you already are in Christ before God lead to progressive holiness before a watching world. He's saying, be who you are wherever you are. Is this the result of you knowing that God chose you before you ever breathe a breath of air? That he's made you to be a mirror image of him and not be a mirror image of the world. Is this the result? But what's the reason God chose us? What's the reason he predestined us? Let's look at it in verse 5. It says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The result of him choosing us, point one, is for our holiness. But the reason, point two, love. Not that you loved him, but that he loved you. Love is the reason God made a decision in advance about you. He made the decision, predetermined, that you would be called a family member of God. God's love is simply by his choice, not because of anything in us, because we might change, not because of the circumstances around us, because those for certain change. He loves us because he loves us. I mean, think about it for a second. If we were in charge of choosing God, that means our fickle hearts can choose one day not to choose God. But if God is in charge of choosing us, the God who is the same yesterday as he is today and will be forevermore, he never changes his mind about you. He never changes his affections towards you. He never questions his decision about you. It's wrapped up in his love for you in Christ Jesus because he's predestined you to be his kids. Now, we know this in our culture. Kids don't get to choose their parents, do they? You don't get to choose who your parents are. Many of you would like to choose who your parents are, right? I mean, Lauren and I brought four kids into this world who regularly think that they can have better parents than us. No, that's, that's not how that happens. It's because mom and dad had predetermined they wanted to have kids. But the gospel of Jesus Christ goes one step further. It says we were once orphans. Not abandoned by a father, but because we abandoned our heavenly father. We are self-made orphans. But in love, God wasn't going to let that be the truest thing about us. He wasn't going to let our decision about abandoning him determine who we are. He was going to let his decision for adopting us as sons in Christ. Do you see what this means? That in Christ, what's now 
not just belongs to Jesus, his spiritual blessings belong to us, but what's true of Jesus is now true of us. Because adoption in the first century meant that adopted children received the same rights, the same access to their parents as biological children. Full access. My kids have full access to me, not because of how well they behave, but because they're mine. You have full access to God as his adopted sons, not because of how well you behave, not because of how well you shape up, because you're his. God doesn't just put up with you. He's so pleased with you. God just doesn't just tolerate you. He completely loves you. Look at what he did. He adopted you not so you can be the second class child to bring you, what does it say? To himself. Do you see what the word says? He doesn't want to adopt you to keep you at a distance. He wants to adopt you so you can come to him. Full access. Now, now some of you might take offense that Paul is using this masculine word here, sonship. Why, why can't the translators today just translate it? Uh, you're adopted as children of God. Kids of God. Why, why can't the translators just, you know, just be, be open-minded here? It's because if we translated it anything other than sons of God, we miss the radical equality and the revolutionary nature of what Paul is saying to a diverse church made up of men and women, slaves and masters, bosses and employees, Jew and Gentile, married and single, young and old. Son always meant legal heir. You know who, who was forbidden to have that status? All women. But gospel culture says men and women equal share of this glorious inheritance that we have in the saints. See, if we don't let Paul call Christian men part of the bride of Christ, which he'll do later. And if we don't let Paul call Christian women sons of God, which he does right here, then we miss the scandalous nature and the radical nature and how wonderful this claim is. Paul is saying to everyone in the diverse church in Ephesus and to this diverse church here with diverse backgrounds and diverse stories, you are one. You have one equal standing before God and one equal share of the inheritance that's yours for all eternity in Christ Jesus. This God chose us to be set apart, not just to be holy, but to have unity in Christ. And the only way to do that is to see one another as equal sons, equal co-heirs in the gospel. Why? So that we can be who we are where we are. Look what Paul says later in chapter 5. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. As who? As beloved children. If we don't know whose we are, 
we won't know how to be who we were meant to be. If we aren't near our Father through his word, we won't know how to imitate him. If we aren't around other brothers and sisters to teach us how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, we won't know how to help one another imitate our Father in heaven. This is what it means to be set apart. To imitate our Heavenly Father here in Pittsburgh. Let me tell you a story. One of my professors in seminary uh, adopted a young girl. Uh, now this, this young girl, um, she was previously adopted by a family that whenever they went to Disney World, they only took their biological children. And in her mind, it was because she was a bad kid. Now thanks be to God, that adoption dissolved. And my professor got to adopt this sweet beautiful eight-year-old little girl into his family's home. Now, my professor planned, he chose, he predetermined to rewrite this girl's story. That he was going to take her with the rest of their biological family to Disney World. But in the months leading up to going to the Magic Kingdom, this little girl started to act out, started to misbehave She started misbehaving once she found out that they were going to Disney World because she's still living in the identity of that former relationship. So he brought her aside. A few days before her leaving, them leaving, her behavior worsened, and she came up to him and said, listen, I know what you're going to do. You're not taking me to Disney. You're not taking me to Disney, are you? So my professor looked her in the eyes and said, Sweetheart, is, is this something that we're doing together as a family? She nodded. He says, are you part of this family? She nodded. He says, you are a part of this family. I'm never going to leave you behind. Now, her behavior did not improve. It actually worsened because her fears got heightened but they still brought her through the kingdom gates, and the day was filled with overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, laughing, long lines. She was exhausted. She was giddy by the end of this time. And at the end of the day, they went back to the hotel room. He held her in his arms, and he said, how was your first day at the Magic Kingdom? She got sheepishly shy. She nuzzled into his shoulder and down into her brand new stuffed animal. She said, Daddy, you didn't take me to Disney because I was good. You took me to Disney because I'm yours. Because I'm yours. The Father did not predestine you, did not choose you, did not invite you into his kingdom because you're good. He did it because you're his in Christ. He didn't invite you into the kingdom to be a second-class citizen. No. 
He's invited you to be his child. His child in Christ. Because of his scandalous grace. Not because we are good, but because we are his. Oh, Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. God is so boundlessly pleased with Jesus that in Christ, he is altogether pleased with us. God doesn't have to put up with you. He doesn't view you that way. He's so pleased with you that if you're in Christ, you are his. Religion tells you to be a holy, good child so that the Father can be pleased with you and love you. The gospel of Jesus Christ says the Father loves you to make you his holy, good children. Why? Because you are his. See, this proves God's choosing of us, his predestining of us, proves that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that necessitated it. You know what God has done with that sin in Christ? He says, I remember it no more. It's not longer what defines you. You being a son of God is now what defines you. What's the reason God did this? Love. He loves you. And so what should be, third point, our response to this Father's blessing of us? Paul tells us in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. You see what Paul's doing? He is so caught up in wonder. He is not wondering as in, why doesn't God choose and predestine everybody? No, he's caught up in wonder why God would choose anybody. Since the wages of sin, our unholiness is death, the shock isn't that God would go and choose and predestine everyone. The shock is that a holy God would choose anyone. And this leads to praise. This leads us to being recaptured by the wonder that God would save somebody like me. That God would call me one of his beloved when I know there's barely anything lovable about me. And this leads to the only right response. The only right response is joy-filled praise. See, the, the options for Paul here is not happiness or holiness. It's not one or the other, and that's not the option before us. Is that if you run after the former happiness, you'll end up getting neither. If you run after temporary happiness, you'll get neither happiness nor holiness. But if you're consumed with the latter, you'll get the first joy-filled praise thrown in. And joy-filled praise, do you see what Paul's saying? It's that all of life can be of praise. Praise isn't isn't about when. Praise is about who and what we are praising. The good news here, especially for those who can't carry a tune, you don't know how to sing. You don't have to know how to sing in order to praise. It's a way of life. 
It's a way of life. Do you see Paul here? Praise of God will not be affected by his imprisonment. But his imprisonment will be affected by his praise of God. Did you hear me on that? Your praise of God doesn't have to be affected by your predicaments in life, but your predicaments can be affected by your praise of God. It could radically reorient everything that you do. And he's saying this for the Ephesian church, to imitate not just him in this way, but be an imitator of Christ. That this is what holy sonship praise looks like. It's love for Father. What else does holiness look like? I love the way our sister Jackie Hill Perry says it. She says, one of the holiest things you can do, oh, it's so simple, but we overcomplicate it, is love our neighbor. One of the holiest things we can do is love our neighbor. Is this our response to God's blessings in Christ? Full praise and love of him. Full praise and love of him the most so that we can love others the best. See, how you respond to God and to others reveals how you think God has responded to you. If you believe that he only responds to you, that you're only saved by your works, then your response will be for your self-righteous praise of your own religion, and you'll require religion of others in order to get into your good graces. But if you truly believe that it's by grace you have been saved through faith, then your response is praise towards God, and grace towards others, even when they sin against you. This is a life full of praise. This is what it means to imitate God. Be holy, be set apart. I mean, what if the the church in Ephesus, from diverse backgrounds, diverse stories, would live in union and unity this way? What if we in Pittsburgh were set apart from the rest of Pittsburgh in this way? What if we were so enamored by God's spiritual blessings of forgiveness that we began to forgive others as God has forgiven us? Not according to what we can do for God, but according to what he has done for us. That is gospel conviction that leads to a wholly set-apart gospel culture. That is knowing that we do not need anything more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We just need more of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our life. Amen? This is being who we are, wherever we are. What if you were so captured by God's patience towards you that it affected your patience towards your neighbors, your boss, your employees, your spouse, your roommates, your classmates? It's gospel conviction that leads to gospel culture. What if we believe That God the Father only has affirming words that build us up in Christ, which he does. That's the only words he has for you are words of affirmation. What if we believe that? You know what would happen? We wouldn't tear one one another down with our words. We would build one, one another up in Christ. That's being who we are, wherever we are. What if? Oh, this is good news for me who is a people pleaser. What if we truly believed that God approves of us so much so that what's true of Jesus is true of us isn't just a pithy saying, but it's a posture in our souls 
that when others' lack of approval comes our way, we might be grieved by it a little bit, but it wouldn't kill us emotionally because we're so far hidden in our approval in Christ Jesus. What if we really believed that God did not choose us or predestine us based on what we do or who we are, that we would be the most humble group of people that Pittsburghers have ever met? Because we have nothing to boast in in ourselves, but boast in solely in Christ alone. Paul is saying this type of culture is possible. He says it later in Ephesians 4. He says, therefore, here he goes. Now he says, I'm a prisoner in the Lord. Urge you to walk in a worthy of the calling you have received. Notice it's not achieved. You've received this with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Renaissance Church, is this what our lives look like? Is this your response? That we would have such a holy sonship set apartness to ourselves. We'd have such a unity that not just the rulers in the heavenly places would be confounded by it like they are in Ephesians 3, but our neighbors would not have categories to identify us. That we look so categorically different to those around us that they would have to step in and ask us, what's going on here? Not long ago, a drug addict, an Irishman, a black man, and a white man walked into a Highland Park coffee shop. It's not the beginning of a bad joke. This was my discipleship group who knows that our lives were a joke prior to meeting Christ. And one of our neighbors walks in, and she asks the question, what's going on here? And our only response was, we're all Christians, all part of one church family. She was just kind of dumbfounded, didn't know what to say, didn't know how to respond. But what she didn't realize is that on the regular, all four of us were dumbfounded by the fact that God calls us sons. That a holy God would call us holy and blameless. Because we knew we were once orphans lost at the fall. We were once orphans running away, even when we heard the Father calling us. But in love, God raced after us, sprinted after us. He has blessed us in the beloved. See, God, who is completely other than us, set apart. That's what holy means. He decided to step down into human history to put on our nature. You know, in over 14 times in these initial 14 verses, the phrase, in Christ Jesus, appears. 
But before we can ever claim the identity of in Christ, we first have to understand that Jesus first claimed the identity of in us. He came to us as a servant in human form to put on our likeness. The holy of holies has graced us with his grace. He came to the earth, took on our form in us. He went to the cross in our sin, not in his righteousness. He took the place of us, the beloved. He has blessed us in the beloved. Do you know what that word adoption means? It means to be put in the place of a son. But Jesus, the beloved was put in the place, not of the blessed one, but the cursed one, on that cross. You see, the eternality of the second person of the Trinity, it does cause our minds to wonder. It does show off the eternal sonship of God. When we think about before the foundations of the earth, we are chosen in Christ. But we have to imagine this, that before the foundation of the earth, because God is eternal, he not only paid for our sins in eternity past on that cross, but because he is eternal, he takes care of your sins today. And because he's eternal, he will take care of your sins and your unholiness and your blame tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And that is your standing before God because your faith is in Christ Jesus. Because the blessed one did not get blessed, but he became cursed on a cross. Why? So that we wouldn't get cursed, but we would be called by his name. Beloved children of God. On that cross, the curse was reversed. Jesus takes on us. He puts on what is true of us so we could put on what is true of him. That is our standing. Holy, blameless, children of God. We get forgiven because he has been forsaken. You know what happens when we recognize our positional holiness? We want to become progressively holy. We want to be who God already declares us to be. Right now. Just answer inside your head. What does the Father declare of you? If it's guilty, you can send that lie back to hell. If it's he's embarrassed of the way you acted this last week, you can send that lie back to hell. If it's not enough, you can send that lie back to hell where it came from. Because in Christ Jesus, we are enough. We are holy, so be who you are wherever you are. And you might be wondering, how do I do this? I'll tell you how to do it in about 30 seconds before we close. It's going to be so counterintuitive to you. Do you know how you walk in the light? It's by getting the darkness out of you. You know how you become holy? You admit that you aren't holy. Do you want to know how you become more patient? You admit that you aren't patient. You want to know how you become more forbearing with one another and forgiving others? You admit that you haven't been forgiving 
You know what you'll be met with when you run to the Father? I'll tell you what you will not be met with. He will not say shape up or ship out. You know what he'll say to you? What sins? I remember them no more. The only thing I see in you is how I see Christ. You will never be met with condemnation. You'll be met with, there is no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? So let's be holy. Let's be children of God. Let's be set apart wherever we are. For in Christ, that is who we are, wherever you are this morning.